Fracking has become a flashpoint in debates about climate change and energy policy. It brings us to the complex interplay of politics and economics, innovation and regulation, society's haves and have-nots. Some see fracking as an economic miracle and an opportunity for energy independence. Others see exploitation and a dangerous technology that prevents us from dealing with the climate crisis. What are the trade-offs? What does the future of fracking look like next year, 50 years down the road? What does fracking mean if you're a Kentucky coal miner, a farmer in Sierra Leone, a fast food worker in upstate New York? Is there any common ground? One thing is certain, there are no simple answers. Two exciting leaders with strong opinions share their views. This is Summits on 10. discussion about fracking is obviously part of a larger debate about climate change, about global warming, about energy access, but I want to strip that away and focus in for a second. So very simply, without a lot of drama, what is the issue that we're debating when people say, where are you on the fracking debate? Well, I think what we're dealing with is an energy transition away from coal and towards natural gas. So in 2007, we got about 50% of our electricity from coal. Last year, we got about 38%. I think the crux of the debate is how to manage the negative impacts of natural gas exploration. Kate, how do you see it? I think where we um, differ is with respect to what the role of the environmental community is with respect to gas development. Gas is not clean enough, either to meet the climate imperative or because of the substantial impacts that it does have in terms of its production. Um, I think where we would take some issue with um, the Breakthrough Institute's work on this issue is that they, uh, I think, understate uh, the impacts, the very real impacts associated with its development. And the other area where I think we may diverge is that we see a greater risk that going all in on gas development really does take us on a path where we're dependent on fossil fuels far longer than the planet can sustain and takes us off of the transition path that we need to be on towards truly clean energy. Over the last couple hundred years, countries all over the world have basically moved in a similar direction when it comes to modernizing their sources of energy. They've gone from wood and dung to coal and hydroelectric, from coal and hydroelectric to gas, from gas to nuclear and renewables. That's a trajectory where you move towards less carbon intensive sources of, of energy. And it's been mostly incremental um, and, and mostly to the benefit of, of health, life expectancy, quality of life. So I think having that broad perspective is missing. Um, I think the second thing is that, that you've got to pay attention to both winners and losers. And um, with gas, you have seen uh, we have left seven times more coal in the ground than we've exported. We're in the midst of a, of a transition that's basically positive that we should not be putting the brakes on. Um, that has been um, good for the environment, it's been good for workers, um, and frankly it's a much better job to be working in natural gas than in coal. Um, and it's been good for the whole country, good for the economy. It's, it's produced $100 billion a year. It's acted as a second stimulus for President Obama. In fact, I think it might be fair to say that I'm not sure President Obama would have won Ohio or won re-election 
if it hadn't been for the gas boom. Kate, what are the, the biggest weaknesses in the breakthrough position? Better is not good enough. The gas industry doesn't need our help promoting its product. It does a pretty darn good job of doing that on its own. We need to be focusing on moving to the really true clean energy uh, alternatives that are going to solve the climate crisis and that are going to make for cleaner energy production in, in all communities. Is, is it true that uh, this whole fracking debate is producing some sort of short-term benefit, but the prices are going to go up, the methane isn't going to be as manageable as we thought, and we're going to end up saying this was kind of a, not a shortcut, but a detour? I guess I would, I would question the, the premise of, of the short-term benefit. Um, there are folks who, um, who've been affected by water contamination, who are being affected by air contamination, whose property values have been affected. There are communities who are dealing with very serious community impacts associated with the, uh, with the, with the rush of, uh, of a new fossil fuel industry coming into town. My perception is a little bit different. I think that actually um, the, the victims of it are being, especially in like the New York media market, <laughs> Um, uh, and the celebrity involvement in this, I think actually that's what's gotten the attention. Um, I, it, it's not a one-to-one -one thing. It's not like the, the gas revolution is not creating as many victims as it is creating beneficiaries. It's just simply not the case. It wasn't the case when we went from wood to coal either. Uh, people lost their jobs chopping and hauling wood, but it allowed people to have modern energy, allowed people to le le live decades longer, and allowed us to save our forests. And that's, uh, with coal, going from coal to gas, um, we are clearly moving from a worse energy source to a better energy source. You know, I, I think that there's a real glossing over here of what the impacts are. Um, I don't know that you can quantify how many victims there have been versus what the benefits are, in part because I think in general there's been a glossing over of, of these impacts. Um, it's not because celebrities are raising the issue, it's because real people, um, people that I've gone and visited in states across the country, um, and especially in Pennsylvania where I've spent a lot of time, are experiencing some very upsetting impacts, things that um, they weren't, they were led to ex uh, believe wouldn't happen when the landmen came in and signed them up, when the gas companies explained what it was going to happen, when the regulators told them that what was going to be there. These are real concerns. We can't just um, poo-poo them and put them to the side because natural gas is a cleaner burning fuel than coal. We've got to deal with them. We've got to acknowledge them. Um, you know, at this foundation, we care a lot about like, real people. And so what I want to do is I want to take this debate and make it very concrete and very specific. So uh, first I want you to meet Dale Abbott. Uh, Mr. Abbott is a 54-year-old father of four who has worked in the mines of eastern Kentucky since he was 25. Last year, Mr. Abbott lost his job at the mine where he had been working most of his adult life. Coal mining is the largest employer in Kentucky. However, this year the number of coal jobs in Kentucky hit its lowest level since 1927. One of the reasons for the job losses is arguably competition from relatively cheap natural gas. Abbott got a new job, earning far less and commuting such a long distance that he has even less time with his family. And maybe we'll go to Michael first and then to Kate. What does your approach to fracking and to natural gas mean for this coal miner in Kentucky? What, what can we offer him if he's watching tonight? Yeah, I mean, we'll, I mean what I, what I, I think what matters for him is, is not really environmental regulations or innovation per se, it's having a strong social safety net. And that's a, a progressive value that we hold and we don't see it as separate from um, having an environmental agenda. In other words, you, we need to have uh, strong uh, protections uh, and, and care for people who are laid off. I, I don't think we should pretend like there's any um, simple answer to that problem. Um, but I do think there's a, there, is, there is a way in which America has 
has not been as generous, I think, as European countries have in terms of providing for people who are displaced by you know, what the economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, the process of technological innovation really wiping out whole industries. Uh, Maria Rivera. She's a 42-year-old fast food worker from upstate New York who earns minimum wage at the two restaurants uh, that employ her part-time. She lives with her husband and two children in a depressed area that has been identified as a potential site to drill for natural gas. If fracking is approved in New York State, Maria and her family would face the environmental and economic consequences. What does your approach to fracking and to natural gas uh, mean to this fast food worker from upstate New York, Michael and then Kate? Right. Well, it's, a, it's, it's hard to know exactly. Can we, do we know where she lives? <laughs> like, uh, um, Make it up. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, I think it's a great case because um, obviously, like, if there's jobs in the natural gas industry, her husband or, or she herself uh, could really benefit from it. The schools could benefit from the additional revenue. Obviously, you know, if it's a situation where she doesn't get any jobs or any benefit from the natural gas revolution and has to have her property right next to a very noisy and, uh, and uh, um, you know, a trafficked area, then it could be negative. So I guess it depends a little bit on that. But I think it's a great case because it gets at sort of the dual side of the, the dual nature of this challenge. Okay, do you see those two sides to the challenge as well? I think that the economic benefits are overstated and that the economic costs, which are very real, socioeconomic and directly economic costs on communities, are insufficiently um, acknowledged and factored into the overall economic picture. Um, we, have, we have supported an ongoing moratorium on New York. We believe that, particularly in an era where you've got a glut of natural gas and prices are incredibly low, and given that there are still, we think, significant unanswered questions about the scope of the risks and whether and if so how they can be managed and what kind of regulatory resources you need to have in place to do that, we should take advantage of the fact that we've got a political situation um, that enables us to take a pause here in New York. And so um, that, that's, that's where we are. At the same time, as I indicated earlier, that does not mean that we're not uh, absolutely uh, conscious that there are real economic development issues that face people throughout the southern tier of New York and into the Catskills region. And we need, all, we need to, to develop other ways of addressing those economic development priorities. In the moratorium, let her face the risks but reap the benefits? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, like I said, I think we need more natural gas if we're going to really replace coal. I mean, coal's still 38% of our electricity mix. We've gone down from 50 to 38. It's a great start, but getting the, net, the, the you know, continuing to get rid of the rest of it, it's going to require a lot of gas, just like saving the whales required a lot of kerosene for lamps, and it required electricity. And yes, it will have consequences, and I think we, we'll, we'll deal with those. But I think we need, if you, if you really take seriously coal's impacts, again, 13,000 premature deaths in the United States every year just from coal, um, then you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're for phasing out coal and then imagine there's some way to do it without expanding gas production. Well, thank you both for spending the time with us, for uh, going back and forth and helping us try to understand these complex issues, uh, for being willing to engage in a healthy debate. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation online at www.summitsontenth.com. And please join me in thanking our speakers, Kate Sinding and Michael Schellenberger, with a round of applause. Thank you.